Uh, welcome to the podcast, Really Interesting Jews. I'm your host, Evan Schultz. Thank you so much for tuning into this most recent episode of the podcast. I keep um, re-recording this introduction. I'm having trouble these days, and I think probably many of you can understand why. Um, this is certainly a, a tricky and trying time in our country, uh, and as I believe in the importance of this podcast um, and the guests and the people that I'm bringing on, um, certainly uh, what many of us are doing these days is uh, clouded a bit by the events um, going on in our country and I keep trying to think, how do I express myself and what do I want to say that are, hasn't already been been said? Um, and really, I think all I can do is to say thank you to all of my uh, teachers, my rabbis, all of the citizens of this country who have found a way to express their voice, however that is, uh, through petitions, through calling our representatives from taking to the streets, so leading Havdalah at JFK Airport, um, the one thing that has nourished me in these times is seeing so many leaders stand up to see people holding signs um, with their real convictions, with the things that they really believe in. I keep thinking, this is the time. This is what I've sort of trained for. This is why I sat in Hebrew school class, and this is why I listened to some of the social justice greats in rabbinical school to talk about the times where they really had to speak their voices on the pulpit and where they took to the streets. Um, and now it is our time to do that. So I encourage you, find your space in this world today to uh, to bring your voice to the to the conversation, however that is, through words, um, through action, through compassion to other human beings. Um, I think that most importantly is what we need right now to know our neighbors, to understand them, to be curious about one another, uh, to show feeling, to show kindness to the people that we greet, the people that we interact with each day, and also the people that we don't know, uh, the people who are right now sitting detained in airports, uh, who are sitting scared and terrified about their fate uh, being decided by a select few in our government these days. Uh, so I'll get off my soapbox now uh, for a moment, but felt the need to um, use this space uh, to encourage you to find your voice at this time. It is certainly something that is important. It's some, certainly something that we as Jews have been told to do. It uh, is screamed to us by the prophets, by the writers of Deuteronomy and our Hebrew Bible. Um, and so I sit today certainly carrying all of those things and certainly in awe and of great thanks uh, to the many uh, models of justice who are now raising their voices throughout our country and really around the world. To shift to today's guest, I really love uh, how this conversation went. I decided on a whim to email Lex Rofus and Dan Liebenson, who are the hosts of Judaism Unbound podcast. I thought, you know, these guys now um, have about 50 episodes. They've interviewed some of the key people in the Jewish world. Um, they too, I think like myself, are on sort of this curious adventure to understand, to think about where Judaism is going these days. Um, and from the from the beginning, uh, we've sort of been in conversation. I've really been paying attention to what they do. I listened to their podcasts, and I thought, why not give them a space to kind of reflect a little bit uh, where they don't have to sort of interview each other, but where I can sort of play that role and give them 
uh, the forum to kind of talk about where they are in their podcast, um, how it began, where they see it going, um, and what they've learned uh, in doing this over 50 episodes or so. So I had a great time with them. It's a little longer than my normal episode, and we actually could have kept going, uh, but I think um, hopefully you'll find it worth it. Didn't edit it too much, just wanted to keep it sort of a a raw conversation uh, between the three of us as podcasters, as uh, curious Jews who are trying to kind of answer some some big questions in a in a patient way. So I'm going to take you now to my conversation with Judaism Unbound, Dan Liebenson and Lex Rofus. Welcome to the podcast, Dan Liebenson and Lex Rofus. I'm so excited to welcome you. Uh, I thought this would be a lot of fun to sort of join worlds here of fellow podcasters. Uh, you're the host of Judaism Unbound podcast, which I greatly enjoy listening to. Um, and I think in many ways, uh, the two of you have sort of set the tone in the, the Jewish world in terms of podcasting, in terms of meta questions that we're thinking about these days, in terms of thinking just in, in new directions for holidays and in many aspects of Jewish life. So I'm very excited to to welcome you. I find the two of you very interesting people as I listen to you every Friday, and I'm really thrilled to welcome you to the, the program. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, so maybe you can begin, uh, I know you've had a chance to talk a little bit about this on your podcast, but I'd love to just hear a little of your, your story, uh, you know, your background, how you came to, to meet one another, um, and then we'll sort of get to your work on Judaism Unbound. The, the way that I usually think of my story is that uh, I was a rabbi's son in Long Island. My dad was a conservative rabbi. And when I was 14, we made Aliyah to Israel. And then I went to an Orthodox school for high school. And, and the way that I tell that story is I didn't much enjoy any of those three experiences, you know, being a rabbi's son, going to Israel when I was 14, and and then going to an Orthodox school, you know, that I didn't connect at the time with those experiences and didn't grow up with a positive view of my Judaism. The difference between me, I think, and the typical person who grows up that way is that in the process, I ended up with an extraordinary Jewish education. And so on the other end of it, I had this sense of possibility. You know, I attribute a lot of it to reading the book Who Wrote the Bible when I was 17, because I had a sense that you could put together the same information in a different way. And I always thought of myself as kind of a non-believer or some kind of dissenter, but I had that as a sort of negative self-understanding. And reading Who Wrote the Bible gave me a way to think about it in a positive way to say, um, hey, I don't like the way that this has been put together in the way that I've experienced it, but I can see that it could be put together in another way. And, and maybe even that way is more true than the way that I experienced and didn't like. So that's kind of how I understand myself. And in a way, that's what I feel like, at least I'm trying to do through Judaism Unbound, and, and Lex can tell his story, but that I'm trying to make that avenue available for people who didn't have the Jewish education that I had and so therefore don't necessarily see 
the opportunity and the potential for Judaism to be wired up in a different way and to be just as powerful, but differently powerful. So in many ways, I think that's my agenda in doing this, and it comes out of my story. Yeah, um, I, so in some ways, actually, in most ways, I think my story is a little different. But what, what Dan and I share about our backstories is I also was very quote unquote affiliated growing up. Um, but in sort of a different sense, I mean, we were members of a reform synagogue. Um, and I thought of myself as a reform Jew, but really, so I, and, but most of the other institutions that I was affiliated with and involved with my summer camp, my youth group, et cetera, um, these were all pluralistic. And I think that was important because subconsciously, I didn't really think much of that at the time, but, you know, I, I was shaped with the mindset that Judaism could be a lot of different things. Um, and I also, I've talked about this on our show, but I grew up in a household that was like hyper Jewish, but in the, I mean, people use the phrase culturally Jewish. I always say that like, really, really, we were like, capital C, capital J, culturally Jewish. Like we had all the Woody Allen jokes. We made, we, we asked rhetorically, is it good for the Jews as a joke? Um, we, we watched Seinfeld all the time. We had like uh, all of those cultural Jewish things were part of both sides of my family. Very important. Um, I have on one side of my family, the classic Jewish story of the socialists out on the soapbox immigrating to the U.S., in the early 20th century that I thought was, you know, an interesting thing, but then I later learned was like a very classic Jewish thing. Um, on the other side, I have the extraordinarily highly achieving academics who wrote lots of things and just achieved a lot. Um, and I, I, I saw all of this without naming it as, as related to Jewishness. Um, what I didn't have was any sort of real connection in a deep way to like Jewish history or holidays. I mean, I did what we've talked about in our show is the big three, you know, Passover, Hanukkah, high holidays. Um, I wouldn't have thought of Shavuot and Sukkot as the big three growing up at all, um, as much as they were in the Bible. And um, and so I liked being Jewish. I, I That's my story's in a sense different from Dan's because I really liked the feeling, the, the kinds of Jewishness and Judaism that I was experiencing. But, um, you know, I got to college and I think like a lot of people, I started thinking about all elements of my life in more complicated kinds of ways. And for me, Judaism was at the center of that questioning. Um, I sort of I started as a math major and I switched to Judaic studies. And as that was happening, I like jumped into every possible Jewish thing I could. I was, you know, very involved with Hillel and I joined what it was at the time, AE Pi and is now Beta Rho Pi, a, a, a Jewish fraternity that is now an independent fraternity at Brown. Um, and I was doing all these things and I liked what I was experiencing, but I started to experience some dissonance between what I thought could be the reality of the Jewish world and what I saw as the actual reality. Um, and that dissonance sort of was small at first, but it kept growing. And then I heard about this guy, Dan Liebenson. Um, I was involved with Hillel International. Dan at the time was a really awesome and well-respected Hillel rabbi, Hillel rabbi, Hillel director at UChicago. And I heard about 
some of the amazing things he had been able to achieve. And, um, and I sent a random email, actually. Like, I, I literally, out of the blue, I just sent an email to Dan, um, had never met him, and said, hey, it seems like you're doing cool things. I'm a senior in college. Like, do you have any, any openings? And his answer was, well, no, actually. Um, but let's talk. Um, and so I did something else. I worked at the Institute of Southern Jewish Life for a couple of years and loved it. Um, and about one year into that two-year fellowship, Dan and I reconnected. And the more we spoke, the more I realized, like, this guy's got some big, grand visions for what Judaism could be. And I'm on board with most of them. Maybe not all of them, but I'm on board with enough of them um, that I would be incredibly excited to to hop on board and sort of think big. Um, and that's what we've been up to for the last while. <laughs> Hello, yeah, and um, your stories actually spark a lot of questions for me thinking. I mean, I, maybe first kind of talk a little bit of just about sort of the actual creation of uh, Judaism Unbound. Uh, listening to the two of you, actually, your partnership makes so much sense because, yeah, you... you you grew up in these two different Jewish realms, Dan, sort of this like kind of intellectual uh, tradition, Lex in the cultural realm. Uh, you would you loved your Judaism growing up, Dan, at a, a, a challenging time. Lex, you more in college. Um, the first thing you actually made me think is, you know, I think with a lot of my guests, and even myself too, it's like every Jew seems to have to go through some sort of like... Um, you know, dark period or distancing from Judaism before you sort of come back to it. And then I guess that that key point is um, how you come back or if you come back. Um, and you're actually, I think, creating for a lot of people with your your podcast, a space to sort of maybe come back for a lot of people. I don't know, but as you were both speaking, that sort of popped in my head as a, a key theme of actually people who are doing really interesting things. Um, there had to be some sort of like period of distancing or, or dark period of, of Judaism, uh, and you're like, ah, it can be better. Or there's a, there's a big question mm-hmm. to to ask here. Um, so yeah, maybe talk a, a, a little bit just about kind of the the creation of of Judaism Unbound, how it how it came to be, why the the, the sort of forum of a, a podcast to to reach people and speak to people. Yeah. So just before that, I just to pick up on your last point, we had a conversation recently with Rabbi B'nai Lappi, who's one of our guests and and mentors and teachers, and she uh, was talking about essentially the experience of LGBT Jews and how they um, were excluded and created their own institutions. And, and one of the things that came up in the conversation was this question of like, is there a way to harness that kind of creativity in the Jewish world without the pain of exclusion or the pain of feeling not part of it? And, you know, could we bring about a situation where there was less pain, but we still had the creativity? And B'nai said she thought there probably wasn't, but there was enough pain, you know, to go around, you know, that uh, that there that there was always going to be pain, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, I, and I think that's really right. And, and I think that um, that is also what we've seen in a lot of our work and in ourselves, I think, is just that um, on the one hand, you want to try to avoid pain and distancing. And on the other hand, that's often where a lot of the great creativity comes from and ultimately the effort to reconcile what caused the pain. And like I was saying earlier, the opportunity that that you also see. And, you know, I, I think that also raises a question of 
when we talk about measuring and what success looks like, that if we have a Jewish communal structure that's oriented towards never hoping that people never drift away, that perhaps that's not actually the best way. And, you know, you think alternatively of the Amish and the idea of the Rumspringa, where they intentionally want people to leave the community for some period of time and then come back from choice. And I think there's really something to that. So uh, on your question of how Judaism Unbound came to be, I mean, again, it's one of these questions that um, you kind of develop a story about who knows what what the real truth is. But um, I think this is uh, at least truthy in Stephen Colbert's <laughs> formulation that um, when Lex first started uh, working here with me, um, about a year plus ago, we, my idea was that we were going to write a book. And we started working on a book. Lex was kind of the researcher for the book and was doing all kinds of reading of, of all the literature that was out there that we thought was relevant to this basic kind of question about, you know, a, a kind of different way of thinking about Jewish innovation. And there was a point that came where we felt like, or at least I felt like we had the beginning of the book, the sort of historical story of Judaism up to this point and the kind of framework of disruptive innovation as a way of thinking about a pathway of change. And then we kind of had the end of the book where we would sort of advocate for what needs to be done in order to bring about the kind of change that we thought would be good. Now, in retrospect, I realized we didn't really have the end of the book either. Um, and, <laughs> but, you know, but we didn't have the middle of the book, I felt, which was kind of the story of today and where we are, what's going on, why it, what is good, why even the good things aren't enough, you know, et cetera. We just didn't quite have it. We didn't quite know how to describe the human needs that weren't being met in, in all this and that, or that could be met or any of that stuff. And so we um, felt like we had to do a whole new round of research. And I really love podcasts and listen to a lot of podcasts. And somehow the idea came about like, well, let's just do that research out in public and We'll interview the people that we think will be important to this part of the book that we want to write and that eventually we'll have that part of the book and, you know, the podcast, whatever. We didn't really expect that a lot of people were going to listen to it. And then pretty quickly after we started releasing the podcast, its listenership was growing and growing and growing. And you know, we kind of realized, wow, this is a thing in and of itself. And, um, you know, now I, I do, I still hope we are planning to write that book this year, but um, that it now fits in, in in a very different way. And it's been really interesting. And I think we can talk about this later to kind of follow the adjacent possible from the podcast and say, OK, now that we're running a podcast that's really working, what comes next after that? And and ultimately, I think our vision is still very similar to what it was a year, year and a half ago about what we want to build one day, but the pathway has changed a lot. And Alex, do you want to supplement that story? Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's about right. I mean, I, I, when we started the podcast, I think what you said first, which is that like we, it's hard to really, we had no idea what it was going to lead to. We did want to do this research um, and we had some basic frameworks that we laid out in our first 10 episodes. We, you know, acutely had Genesis two episodes, Exodus two episodes, Leviticus, et cetera. Um, and so our first 10 are sort of like what we stand for on one foot. Although I don't know if I could stand on one foot for the eight hours or however long that 10 episodes is. Um, but, uh, but really we talk about this on our podcast. We are big proponents of 
experimenting with new Jewish ideas and seeing what comes of it. And I think that our podcast actually is a real lived example of that. We didn't know exactly what it was going to lead to. We had some sense that we had ideas that people might want to talk about and engage with. Um, but did we envision that people would be starting their own local podcast circles like book clubs? No, I don't. I didn't. Um, I think it's great that they have. Um, did we envision that we would sort of because of the success of the podcast, be thinking about how digital Judaism exists in the world and how something like a podcast that has no geographic borders can reach thousands of people way easier than any physical institution can. Um, I don't think we were thinking about that yet, but now as a result, um, we've started to really enter into other kinds of digital Judaism and, and realized that, oh, you know, anybody with a laptop in close proximity is actually like able to connect to thousands and thousands of hours of Jewish material if they want to. What does that mean for our world? Um, what does that mean? They also have access to millions of humans. We're, we're actually speaking via Skype right now. Um, none of us is in the same place. We're in three different locales, two different time zones. Um, and so we've been playing around with that as a result of how the podcast has really taken hold. So it's, it's fun. And, um, I think if you, if we touch base again in a year, there may be some other thing that we're playing around with that we haven't even envisioned just yet, because we really do believe in the power of that process of experimentation. Yeah, and I'll t I mean, the things I love about your your podcast, um, I think most importantly, you have this big question, but you you show patience, you show restraint, you're showing, oh, I don't have to figure this out in X number of episodes, or a year from now, we're going to kind of have this question answered. I think there's a lot of people are so impatient right now, we're saying, okay, Judaism has to change, so we just need to be make these sort of big sweeping changes, we need a major revolution in what we're doing, um, and that's actually, in reality, that's not how change takes place, I mean, it's more how you're you're approaching it. Uh, yeah, we have this question. Every every week we interview someone. We come with probing questions. We're curious. We're trying to learn. We're we're sort of chiseling away a little bit. And um, to show that kind of patience, it's actually um, a really good model for people to see that you're approaching it that way. And I think, like you said, Lex, just modeling for people having conversations with with others is is really helpful i mean the fact that you have groups of people who are sort of riffing off your your podcast sitting together face to face uh and talking about it or virtually you know or virtually is really important uh you know i think all of us have probably learned from uh larry hoffman and he's sort of been saying lately that Ju judaism is very much a conversation and uh you know you're you're kind of enabling people to to do that <clears throat> just by by virtue of how you um, each week sit down with someone and engage them and yeah I think for both of us the the medium of the podcast you don't know exactly where the conversation is going to go and all of a sudden you know twenty minutes in thirty minutes in you can have this realization of like oh okay I didn't even know I was going to get here but just by two people and that's so much what Judaism is about just uh, two people or three people sitting down conversation something is gonna come of it or a new idea might might brew from that conversation so that's um you know when i listen to it i really appreciate that approach that you you bring to it um i wonder if you could talk i mean you touched on this a little but you have uh, sort of expanded 
uh, you've sort of created this brand of Judaism Unbound. You have, uh, you know, movies you can watch on the holidays, uh, playlists for the holiday uh, you did on the on the High Holy Days, uh, sort of a take on the different uh, Torah readings and, and Haft Torah readings. Um, how has that sort of fit in? How's that sort of been received by your uh, by your audience? Yeah, um, it's honestly, I think it's been my most rewarding part of this whole experience. Um, I I really think that we are, we being sort of Jewish institutions loosely, I think we are aware of what the internet means. We're, we're aware that the internet is a significant thing for Jewish meaning, Jewish community, Jewish purpose. Um, but we sort of treat it as this sideline thing and segment it off because we're afraid of it. Um, because we see the internet as like a place where Jews have access to Judaism that isn't our synagogues, that isn't our JCCs, that isn't our, you know, local institutions that we love and contribute to and et cetera. So we're not quite investing in them. And so we wanted to, uh, like, I mean, maybe I'll speak for me. I really wanted to think about like, what would it mean for somebody anywhere? Part of this is I lived in Mississippi for two years and I had a nice community, but didn't have access to all the things that I would, ex that I would expect in a New Yorker or Chicago. Um, what would it mean if anybody anywhere could celebrate like Shavuot, a holiday we don't think of as particularly major these days, at least not most Orthodox Jews, not, not most non-Orthodox Jews. Um, and so that was our first one. We did Shavuot Unbound. And that was largely because um, I just really wanted to play around with this. Shavuot's my favorite holiday. I think we totally advertise it wrong. I think if you told a seven-year-old, hey, you get to stay up all night or as late as you can, eat dairy products, cheesecake, maybe throw some ice cream in there, um, and, and learn something. I, I actually think that seven-year-olds want to learn something. You know, maybe I'm an optimist. Um, I think they'd be so psyched. I think if that was our packaging, our marketing for Shavuot, um, and that would work for adults too, like stay up late, read something interesting, or, you know, learn with your friends about something interesting. Maybe it's Torah. Um, that'd be that'd be cool. Uh, maybe it's something else. Um, I think that's actually a great holiday. And so I was like, how could we provide this for somebody that's living somewhere where there is no Shavuot experience? Um, and... And that's what we sort of set about doing. We made all these tracks. We had, you know, a track for if you wanted to spend one hour engaging with Judaism. And that was just you could listen to one podcast or you could watch one interesting episode of a TV show. I think we had Transparent on there that is super Jewy if folks haven't watched it yet. Um, we had um, we had longer tracks. We had three hour tracks where you could listen to um, we had a Bim Bomb track, this great home digital home for videos about the Torah and about holidays, et cetera, where people could for three hours engage with these awesome videos with their families or by themselves. Um, we had six hour tracks and we even had a couple 12 hour tracks. I don't know if anybody did those fully, but um, you know, why not offer them? You can in a digital world. So we were psyched about that. And it turned out that um, uh, over a thousand people accessed those pages during on the two days of Shavuot. Um, that's that was incredible to me. I didn't expect that. Um, and many of them accessed it at, you know, two thirty three in the morning. So that it appeared they actually were using it for this all night kind of purpose. Um, 
And and Dan and I sort of sat down and we realized, you know, if Shavuot is doing this and it's a holiday that sort of flies under the radar, it might be true that other holidays it'll work too. And so High Holidays Unbound was our next one. And it sure enough sort of blew through the roof compared to Shavuot. I think it doubled our our initial number of like website visits. Um, and then we just did Hanukkah Unbound, which was even bigger. And I think Hanukkah Unbound is the one I'm really proudest of. I think we were able to put the most time in. We had eight different ways to light your menorah in creative ways. We had, you know, a playlist, like you mentioned, for different songs from not not necessarily, you know, Hebrew songs or songs explicitly about Judaism, but songs that touch on light and winter and these kinds of themes. Um, and, and on and on. We did we, we even imported the ritual of Ushpizin from Sukkot of welcoming guests to the sukkah. We imported it to Hanukkah because we think that when you've got an eight-night holiday like Hanukkah and you gather as a family, you can also welcome guests metaphorically just like you do on Sukkot. Um, we played around with all these, and, um, and we're looking to continue that. Um, we're planning a Passover Unbound to come up this year, and ideally in a few years' time, um, we will have sort of the full cycle of calendars unbounded and with digital forms of observance for people that, that want to try that out. Yeah, and I think that, I, I mean, I think what's really interesting is that I have a pretty different perspective on it from what Lex just articulated. And I think what's great about it is that, and, and what we're trying to do in general is that we're trying to create this tool that can work on multiple levels, you know? And so I think like Lex, for example, is most excited or uh, among other things about the digital dimension of this, right? Can we observe the Jewish holidays in digital form because Lex is a digital native as a millennial, you know, as a member of Gen X, you know, that that's not necessarily what I'm thinking is the most exciting to me, although, you know, but I'm thrilled that we are, you know, working towards this platform that works for millennials that way, you know, and for me, what's driving me and most exciting to me is the idea of empowering regular Jews to remix Judaism and to, in some way, put in their hands the ability to do that um, without having to be, um, without having to be bounded by what traditionally we're told are the boundaries of how Jewish innovation happens. And so, for example, the playlists for me, um, you know, I, I've, I'm the one that does a lot of the playlist creation. Um, and where I'm trying to be guided by is the idea that what would it look like if we created a playlist of music that echoes the themes of the religious liturgy of this holiday, but doesn't say God, doesn't None of it is in Hebrew or any other sort of quote Jewish language. You know, is there is there a way to to do that that really can connect people with the very essence of what Judaism has to offer without putting the barriers in their way that various sort of sacred cows that many of the more uh, authoritative Jewish leaders think is necessary, otherwise it's not Jewish. And I don't know if what the answer is necessarily, and I'm certainly not making the claim that our playlist accomplishes that. In in my ideal world, our stuff inspires other people 
to say, oh, if you could make a alternative menorah through essentially a chemistry set that glows, which is one of the things that we did, you know, I have a different idea that I think would be much more exciting and valuable. Like one of our podcast guests, we were talking about using glow sticks because, you know, in a college dorm, you can't um, light fires. And she was like, well, that's too limited in your thinking. Like we should be thinking about instead of putting the menorah in our home, let's put it in our car, you know, because that's where we actually, you know, and then Lex was like, no, let's put it on the internet because that's really where we live, you know. And that's the kind of environment that, that I would like to create over time. And so I feel like our websites and our digital stuff is a, really just a 1.0 of this, you know, and we, on the one hand, I appreciate what you're saying about us building a brand and that we're building stuff that's already really good. And I hope that's the case. But from our perspective, we really just see this as the very beginning and something that hopefully over time can can really become better and better itself. But even more importantly, sort of inspire a cottage industry of literally people in their cottages um, <laughs> reinventing Judaism. I mean, I think what doing successfully is sort of I mean, people have come to Judaism with with um, a space that they're familiar with. So songs that people might know or shows that uh, people are watching, um, that's something that's something they they know. It's comfortable for them. The, that's sort of a step they'll they'll take rather than going straight to uh, a Hebrew prayer or right uh, jumping right into um, some complex Jewish learning. Uh, and I think for a lot of people, it sounds like um, you know that's a good that's a good entry point. You could say, okay, yeah, this is <laughs> this is this is a song I'm familiar with. I get the themes of the song. This is something I I understand, um, and that's a that's a really good then entry point into some of the yeah the the world of um, the Jewish knowledge of these holidays. I'm thinking as you guys are tired. The, the question now I'm thinking about is. Um, you know, in, in terms of connecting digitally, um, you know, what are we connecting people to? How far, you know, how deep does it is it go? I actually was saying to my wife the other day, I wonder what would happen if, um, you know, we created like a Shabbat service that was on Facebook Live that was like dedicated just to people like watching online. There wasn't, you know, most like streaming now you are you're watching somebody else pray you know your camera in the back of the room of some synagogue but what if there was like a service that was you know a couple people in a in a living room and you could chat with them and you could talk and you could interact and you didn't know where the service was going to go and they felt like that was for for them and then i thought hmm is this you know are people connecting to one another through that is this um you know would that be a way for people to um to engage that they just couldn't, you know, face to face or in a in a synagogue. You know, there's been sort of these series of concerts right now. This harmony and unison concert. I don't know if you've seen those, but it's sort of been a, a, a Jewish singer like plays for an hour online. You know, and people could type in and talk to them and ask for for music. And I think people are feeling like, wow, I'm I'm feeling connected. I can sit in my living room and have this unbelievable concert and experience. Um, and is that you know, is that enough? Is that sort of in the uh, spirit of the Jewish project? Uh, is that where we're headed? Um, I don't. I don't know. I can't. Uh, can't fully decide if that's uh, you know where the trajectory of where our <laughs> ancestors were hoping we'd go, wherever so you know wherever this project began. Um, I don't know. I'm curious if I'm rambling a little bit, but. Um, you know, just what you were saying, or making me think uh, 
you know, how far do we take this? Um, how, uh, what does a digital Judaism fully look like? And is that sort of enough to satisfy people's desire to connect and find meaning? Well, that, that's where I would start by in, in two ways. One is historical and then one is theoretical. And then I'm sure Lex has digital native stuff to jump in with. Um, <laughs> but from a historical standpoint, like I just would encourage us all to imagine this conversation in the waning days of the Second Temple period or, or after the Second Temple was destroyed, you know, where these rabbi guys are coming up with this alternative approach to Judaism, they're saying, let's really emphasize the Torah, let's really emphasize that music that the Levites were singing in the background, and, um, you know, let's emphasize our wisdom tradition and, and a few other things. And uh, then the priests are like, yeah, but I don't know, the sacrifices, you know, without the sacrifices, I just don't know if people are really going to fully get the experience, you know, and, the, and, and, and they would have been right. The experience of rabbinic Judaism in the early days was inferior, I think, to the experience of Second Temple Judaism. But the experience of Rabbinic Judaism, let's say, you know, 500 years ago, or whenever you might say was the glory days of Rabbinic Judaism, was probably richer than what it was in, those, in that heyday of Second Temple Judaism. Because in addition to having developed a um, really moving ceremony, there was also, it was weekly and not just three times a year, you know, it was, there were all these elements that had been added over time that, that actually made it better than Second Temple Judaism, but it took a while to get there. And if you had said in those early days, I'm not willing to go there because it is inferior at the present time, then we never would have gotten there. And probably Judaism would have just ended because once the temple was destroyed, it would, there would have been nothing else. So, and that tracks with the theory of disruptive innovation that, that is a major theme for our show and for our thinking, which is a business theory identified by Clayton Christensen at Harvard Business School that basically describes why that process of something inferior that starts outside of the existing system uh, gr grows and grows and gets better and better over time and ultimately becomes as good and maybe better than what you started with, but open and interesting to a, a lar much wider group of people for all sorts of, of reasons. And that's what we would suggest here. So I don't think that current experiences of Judaism over the internet, whether it's sitting and playing with our website or listening to this singer, I don't think that any of those are as good as the um, best available forms of Judaism that you might find in the best synagogue there is and or whatever it might be. But A, that best synagogue experience isn't going to connect with a huge number of people. So for them, it's actually better because they wouldn't have gotten the synagogue experience at all because it doesn't work for them for various reasons. And for the people who right now are getting this wonderful experience in that greatest synagogue that there is, yeah, they shouldn't jump to the new stuff right now. They, but but in 100 years, and this is where what you were bringing up earlier about patience, and we might come back to that. I think patience is so important in all this, uh, that, that if we believe that this other thing, in this case, internet-based, might get better and better over time with the introductions of new technologies like virtual reality and whatever that might start to be able to give people some of those social experiences that are missing or, or other things that you might identify as weaknesses today, that we should really be investing in those things and allowing them to to flourish and to grow and grow and grow and not not put pressure on them to get too big too fast. I mean, I guess I'll say the patience point right now because I think it's so important for people thinking about 
what success looks like today in Jewish innovation is that I think that people are so desperate, they're, they're so worried about the future of Judaism that anything that has even a sniff of being good they want it to go to scale quickly. They want it to. They want it to be huge, you know. And that's not the right move, in my opinion. You know, I think we need to be investing in a lot of really small things, not pushing them to get too big, but pushing them to get better and better and better, and a little bit bigger over time. And eventually, one of those, and we can't know right now which of those, one of them may well catch fire and become the thing that you know people gravitate around, and that becomes some. Um, exciting new version of Judaism, or maybe some of them will merge together. We don't really know, but we know from other walks of life that there are these patterns of innovation and growth that that come about and that, that bring a paradigm shift about and that actually ultimately make the thing, I use photography a lot as an example, you know, digital photography is, is now bigger than film photography ever was. Uh, it didn't start that way. And it, certainly the quality wasn't good. And if we can imagine something like that in all these other walks of life, like, do, why do we think Judaism is different? And that's something that I think is really important in thinking about this stuff. Let's not, let's not be thinking on a time horizon of a year or two. Let's be thinking about a time horizon of 100 years. And what would it look like if we could really start to put in motion some, some things that in 100 years might reach the level of quality and sophistication that would make them true, valuable alternatives to what we are familiar with today? And in the meantime, let's really nurture what we have today and make it work as well as it can for as many people as it can. And at the same time, let's bring about this whole new ecosystem that we know is going to take 100 years till it reaches its full flourishing. Yeah. Um, so mostly I want to say like, amen, brother. Um, but but what I also want to say, so in terms of the initial question, in terms of the initial question of sort of is and I want to make sure I got it right, but sort of is digital Judaism enough? Um, here's what I would say. Like Dan hinted at this with when he talked about virtual reality and that. Like, like we think about the internet and the digital world and computers as something you do as an individual person, and I think that's true right now mostly. Although even as I say that. I had a moment yesterday where I realized I've had probably five times as many meetings via Skype in the last year than I have had in person in the last year. Um, that's partially because of the nature of our work. But, um, you know, I think that there is a communal element that is already happening via video chat and other things, Facebook Live. But um, I, I want to just envision a world for a second where everybody is able to connect with basically anybody else on the planet who is connected to the internet. So that's already just about everyone, but will be hopefully everyone in not too long. Um, I want to envision a world where you can feel as if you are in the same place as them, or at least you are sort of connected enough and you're able to simulate feelings of, of togetherness with that person in a way that we can't yet. Um, and what would that mean for our experiences of Judaism? I think it would basically change everything. I think the entire idea of localized Jewish communities, that I think they would still exist, but I don't know that they would be as central because you could build the same with sort of your pick of humans anywhere on the planet. Um, 
And once again, that's not a five years from now question. That's a longer question. I don't want to claim a certain number of years, 100, 200. Um, but I think that the idea that the internet is primarily an individual kind of experience versus in-person being a communal experience, I think that's how we think about it. I think that's collapsing. Um, because, and also the good enough question, I can tell you, we already have access to your choice of probably a hundred sermons on a Friday night through streaming services online. That you could you could go to your local synagogue and probably get a reasonable sermon. But if your goal is to get the best sermon, and I bring this up because my dad actually did this on High Holiday. Wait, at Evans Synagogue, you get the best locally. Yes, yes. Um, but if everybody could have access to Evans sermon, um, which they they could already, but um, like, would it would it be good enough? to have whatever sermon you have locally, or would it perhaps be even better to have five of the best on the planet every week, if that's how somebody wanted to structure it? Now, you wouldn't have the experience of being in the room with that person. You couldn't make eye contact and possibly smile um, and maybe get, maybe if you make eye contact at the right moment, elicit some sort of nice comment or response if the speaker's good. I don't know, but like, is is that actually worse? I, I don't know. I'm saying that as a real question because I I've talked to my dad who on a high holidays experienced you know six great sermons on different time zones um, through streaming and and walked away and told me that that was his most meaningful high holiday experience in years um, and I think that that has to we can register that as disappointing that, you know, the synagogue locally wasn't as good. Or we can say, wow, that's cool. We have access to that. I want to respect your time. I feel like I could keep, we could keep that. This is a great comment. You guys are so good. Clearly you bring immense uh, thoughtfulness, intellect, background into what you, what you do. And uh, I think I'd love to hear, and certainly others, just, uh, you know, is there a, a Jewish text or teaching or, or poem that sort of guides you in your work and all these questions uh, in the way that you, you see the world? Uh, I'd love to conclude uh, with each of you sharing one of those. Yeah, I'm jonesing to, go, to do this, so I'm going to jump in first. Sorry, Dan, if you wanted to. Um, I'm going to answer. So you, I've got a teaching. Uh, I would argue it's a Jewish teaching. It is not from a Jewish text. It is not from a Jewish person, arguably. It is from a character on the television show House. Um, it's from Lisa Cuddy, who happens to be played by a Jewish actress, um, Lisa Edelstein. Um, and I'd mention as a side note that she she has a Jewish Women's Archive page. And the first thing that mentions is that at age 16, she protested uh, Donald Trump because she was a cheerleader for his New Jersey. I think it's interesting, given our times that we live in. But um. So she says on an episode of House, pain happens when you care. And I've been thinking about that quote a lot lately, and I bring it up because we also spoke earlier on this episode about how, how pain can play actually an important role, how distancing from Judaism can, can be an important step towards growth. Um, and... Uh, it's, it's a riff maybe on no pain, no gain, but I have looked at that quote for many years 
since it first was on the show house as a really important principle when when I am experiencing pain, um, you know, pain happens when you care. And, you know, it's not from a Jewish text. It's a very unbound way to go that I would grab from a, a character on a TV show who, because the actress is Jewish, uh, Jason Alexander once said that George Costanza was Jewish because he's Jewish. Um, all the, he said all the characters he plays are Jewish. Um, you know, we could talk more about that, but um, pain happens when you care. Actually, that George Costanza being Jewish line connects to one of the things that I wanted to say, actually, I'm going to take some liberty and say that too. Because one point that I kind of think about a lot is that when we think about Jewish learning or Jewish teachings, we tend to go to texts, you know, as the, you know, as if all of Judaism is in texts. And it reminds me of that story. It's, you know, that sort of well-known jokey story about the, you know, I've heard of it, the wise man of Chelm that one lost his wallet and is looking in a particular place. And somebody comes up to him and he says, you know, where, uh, what are you doing? And he says, I'm looking for my wallet. And he says, well, why, uh, where, where did you lose it? And he says, oh, I lost it about a mile down the road. And they said, well, why are you looking over here? And they said, well, here there's streetlights. And that, that kind of feels to me like the reason why in many cases we think of Jewish texts as the only source of Jewish learning is because that's where the light is. That's where we have the most clear, easy way to find it. And that makes, so, you know, I actually have this novel that I'm kind of working on that uh, one of the key points about it is a Jewish historical novel. One of the key points that's involved in it is that there was a group of Jews who really were against texts on a very principled reason that, you know, that they thought that texts were fundamentally conservative and didn't allow the true flourishing of a culture because they kind of set things down, you know, according to some particular agenda at a particular time and and kind of froze Judaism in a in a way that was ultimately not good for it. And and that's my worry about texts in general as a source of teaching. So there I'll go with two ways. One is that I, I always, you know, we've talked a lot in our show about Bernie Sanders um, and his Judaism having been called into question during the Democratic primaries. You know, the, is he really, what kind of a Jew is he? And, you know, I think about the teaching from Bernie Sanders, which in many ways has been one of the main teachings that's guided my life from a social justice standpoint, which says, you know, that my family was killed in the Holocaust, is what Bernie Sanders says. My family was killed in the Holocaust. And from that, I learned, and he said it in different ways, that politics is a serious business or that, um, you know, we have to make sure to care for the vulnerable because we were once vulnerable, you know, et cetera. And, and that strikes me as a profound Jewish teaching, not only because you could tie it to the text of we were slaves in Egypt and therefore we should care for the orphans and the widows and the strangers, but, but just because on its very self, it's, a, it's an example of how Jews think, which is that we suffered and therefore we have a responsibility to make sure that others don't suffer. And I don't think that has to come from a text. I think it's well enough that that comes from the collective experience of the Jewish people over our history. So for me, that's that's you know something that's guided me before I ever heard of Bernie Sanders. And, and now I kind of uh, attribute it to Bernie Sanders. But uh, for me, that's, that's very profound. But I, I will add one text because I've been thinking about it a lot too lately, which is the story of the scouts being sent into the promised land at the beginning of the Exodus. And I think that's an amazing text for all kinds of reasons. But lately, I've been thinking that the 
great sin of the spies, as it's called, you know, was the great error was not anything that the scouts did, but the error was in having sent them too soon. And that so often, back to what I was saying earlier about patience, that we are so eager to find the new Judaism, to find the new approach that and we're sort of sending these scouts to go scout it, go, go there, figure out what it is and come tell us and then we'll go there. You know, and if you do that prematurely, it's an undoable job. The, the scouts won't be able to define a vision. People will follow them in the wrong direction. They'll say we can't do it. You know, and really the only way to do it in this time of, of dis- upheaval and transition is to just not, not do that, you know, it, and is to talk about it and to try to figure it out, but not to imagine that anybody is able to go, uh, you know, up on a mountain or go, go, go forward from where we are and be able to see anything that we can't see. That's not the, that's not the right way. So, um, you know, so that's really what's been on my mind lately. Lex and Dan, I want to thank you so much for your time today. I mean, for me personally, uh, what a treat just to kind of sit and, and chat with you and, and think together. I think what you're doing with Judaism Unbound clearly is something so important for you know, the Jewish world right now. You're thinking uh, you are treading waters. As you said, you are patient in your approach. Um, you are two people to really pay attention to. Uh, Lex, I'm so glad that one day that you uh, decided to randomly email <laughs> Dan, look what it produced. Um, and I'm so glad I kind of just one day thought, hey, I should email these two guys and uh, have them on the, the podcast. I think uh, just uh, from my perspective, great conver- conversation. So anyone out there listening, if there's someone out there who you've um, you know been admiring their work, give them an email. Look what you can uh, perhaps produce but uh thank you the two of you really uh have a great interplay um and your backgrounds and your your approaches uh complement to get one another so nicely uh and my favorite people in the world are people who are really brilliant and menschy and uh, the two of you definitely fit that fit that bill so um thank you for for taking the time to to come on this this podcast and engage in conversation i encourage everyone to check out your podcast judaism unbound and your website i don't know if you want to say any Last words or where people can find you or uh, a little teaser for what's to, to come. Uh, but uh, yeah, I want to thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks so much for having us. And Lex always does the outro so he can uh, <laughs> do a good job of telling you how to get in touch with us. Yeah, I guess I can do that. Um, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll just do it quicker. But um, So we've got our Facebook page, which is just Judaism Unbound. You can like us there. We've got our website, JudaismUnbound.com with all sorts of fun resources. And uh We've got our email addresses, dan at nextjewishfuture.org and lex at nextjewishfuture.org. And the last thing I want to say, by the way, is that Evan, in in speaking about us in Brilliant and Menchie, is being very kind, is also Brilliant and Menchie. And just from the get-go, we, we, we came onto the Jewish podcast scene at around the same time. I forget exactly how the timing worked. And and I also forget which one of us messaged the other, but we were. it's just really fun to know that... For anyone out there who's curious, we're not competing with one another. Um, like Judaism Unbound, really interesting Jews, the, the Jewish podcasting landscape. I think uh, we're we're trying our best to model what it looks like to be supportive of one another and really elevate all of our work. And I can say just with 100% certainty that Evan has been one of the key pieces in making sure that like 
all of these Jewish podcasts that are arising are connecting and thriving and and support one another. So thank you, Evan, for for being such a great role. I agree, a hundred percent. I think we're all, you know, engaging in this this process of, of uh, supporting one another, having phenomenal conversations, kind of seeing where where things go. So I appreciate that. Thank you. That means a lot. And. Uh, yeah, wishing you so much, so much luck, and I will certainly promote all the things that you guys are doing. I think it's so important, and um, yeah, thank you. Wishing you a wonderful 2017. You too. You too. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Last forward